Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Code Vine for September 13th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, we're quite excited about tonight's show. For the third time, uh, we're going to have as our special guest, Mr. William Snyder. Um, if you watched any political coverage on CNN uh, throughout the 90s and, and into the 2000s, um, you are familiar with uh, Bill Snyder's work. And he still writes for The Hill magazine, and he still appears on our show. And he is just, I guess, the dean of the political analyst. Um, in America, if you will. So we're so excited to have him about 20 minutes into the show. Uh, but until then, we've got topics to cover. And um, Tim and Catherine, because you're in the state, um, we know that this congressional race, given that it's not necessarily on paper a very close one, has gotten an outsized amount of coverage. Um, Tom Graves decided to uh, not seek re-election. And for 2020, and it created an open seat, and a lot of candidates joined up. And um, one Democratic candidate, Kevin Van Ostel, and a lot of Republicans, including a fairly controversial uh, Marjorie Greene, um, joined the race, and um, it got a lot of attention because of her. Well, this past Friday, um, it got national attention again, but this time she actually wasn't making the headlines. Um, the Democratic candidate, Kevin Van, Van, Van Edsel, um, Osdell, said he is not going to um, continue the race. He's going to step down as the Democratic nominee, creating a vacancy on the Democratic side, and there's still some questions to be answered on that. And then just right after that, a few hours later, um, current 14th Congressional District Congressman Tom Graves said before the month of October is out, there's some uh, piece of legislation or some congressional work he's going to finish up, and then he's going to step down immediately and not finish out his term. Um, So they went from three people involved in this seat, if you will, to now one. Um, Tim, we know you can't tell us all the pieces of this, but what can you tell us logistically about this um, process of uh, Kevin Van, e- Van Est Odsdell, um removing his name from the ballot? Yeah, first of all, if anyone wants to go and read about it, they can get some of the details of the personal reasons that he that prompted his withdrawal. I, I, I will leave that right there. But because we're a political show, um, it, it would appear that there's not a whole lot we can do. Um, state law is 
fairly specific about this. There is a 60-day limit before an election to make changes to the ballot to add or subtract candidates. Uh, nominees, now party nominees I'm talking about, and the date is passed. We're 51 days out. And uh, you know, we, we are waiting on official confirmation from the Secretary of State's office. They apparently have talked to the media already. And and that's pretty much where we stand right now. I'm, we're we're just not sure if basically what or anything can be done at the moment. Yes. And, yeah. And, and Tim, I will say this: the AJC. I'll lay a little more onto that, and I'll just say what the AJC reported, um, because you know speculating on it. Uh, gets us nowhere. It would just be salacious. We don't have any information, so it'd just be um, you know gossiping, and that's not what we try to be about. But apparently, his um, wife filed for divorce, and part of the divorce agreement is while they go through that process, that both of them vacate their residence, and he feels financially the best uh, move for him is to return to Indiana and live with family. And while he could live in another part of Georgia, I mean, he could go to Brunswick and live. He can't, which is on the other side of the state, if you don't know, it would be from the northwest corner to the southeast corner. He can't move to Indiana and seek um, the congressional seat of Georgia. Uh, 14th District. So that's logistically what was reported in the Atlanta Constitution. Um, Catherine, what's kind of your thoughts being a Georgian but not a Northwest Georgian on this um, situation? Well, I mean, it's a big disappointment um, to not have a candidate running in that race. I mean, like you said at the beginning, that it's a very strong Republican district. The chances of um, Mr. Van Oswell winning were, were, were slim, but it's always good to have someone on the ticket, someone for uh, fellow Democrats to rally around, and you never know uh, how people are going to respond to the other candidate, and if it also drums up uh, votes for upper and lower ballot races when you've got someone running. So it's a big disappointment. Um, I I looked at some of the laws around this um, over the weekend, and it sounds like some people, you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, among people, and people were suggesting a write-in candidate. But in Georgia, you have to – it's kind of ludicrous. You have to be a registered write-in candidate. You can't just, like, write – like, you just can't – randomly decide to write someone in and even if you had a big movement to do it um if they aren't registered as a write-in candidate those write-in votes don't count and the deadline for write-in candidates i I, if i calculated this right i believe was a week ago tuesday so you know almost two weeks ago um so we can't even register a write-in candidate, which would have been a long shot anyway, because that's, you know, it's really hard to get that word out without a lot of money for advertising and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it sounds to me like we just aren't going to have a 
can't. I mean, she's going to walk into that seat without any contest. It sounds to me like, um, unless the Secretary of State's office comes yeah. back with some other kind of, um, you, know, you know, solution, which is very unlikely, and they're not going to. Yeah, I'm, and I might add here that if if Mr. Van Alstel's name remains on the ballot, um, no votes for him would be counted because he's been disqualified. So they won't even, right. you know, the, the the media types may want to know his vote totals just, you know, for the sake of writing something in, in the paper or something, but his, his votes just won't count. He, he could not win the seat even if he won the seat. So. Yeah, and my thinking would be, is if you got a printed ballot in the mail, let's say you requested your absentee ballot, um, you may get his name on your ballot, but then if you wait till election day and go in person and vote on the um, touch screen, I bet his name won't appear. So it's not like, I mean, because I, I will tell you this, if me being a voter in the 14th Congressional District, if his name were to appear on the screen, even though it wouldn't count, I'd vote for him just as a protest vote against Marjorie Green, But I, I guarantee you, if I go on election day, it won't be there. Um, do either one of y'all know, you know, if that's, if that's now, incorrect. I, I don't if know I, if all the ballots have been printed or not. That yeah, I did that's not the know. print ballots. That's, not, that's what I'm saying. The print ballots, yeah, the, you know, sure the printed, it's the ones that the other ones they can edit a lot quicker to the election day. I'm just not sure I'd if say, they can... If the, if ahead, the printed ballot can be different than the digital ballot, I just don't. I don't know. That's, the that's, that. a, that's a good point. That may be true. I mean, it's just it's kind of a mess, and it's something that in this situation can be helped. And in other situations, uh, there's going to be things that come up that can't be helped. Um, yeah. Well, so, let let me ask you this, David: What in the world is Graves doing? That was my next question. Yeah, that's crazy. I do not know. Um, yeah, it was um, – someone told me that they may get some information down the road, and they'll share it with me. And if it's just gossip stuff, then just like we aren't going to gossip about the other, we're not going to gossip about this. But if it's substantial political information, um, then, you know, I'll share it. Um, but – it was very surprising. It seems like, why not just finish what you started? I don't see any upside to leaving two months early. Um, I don't know how the pension system yeah, works. Okay. I know a lot of times you need to work so many years you know, to get your a better let, pension, so this might leave yeah, it a little but, short. But, but let's be honest. He's got an angle for doing that. Everybody has an angle. He's got an angle. There, he has a specific reason for doing this other than that absolute poppycock that he told the press yeah he's got there he's got an angle and 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 i don't and and there's timing of it was so strange the i mean Catherine, do you think there was any like well if van odstel's dropping out that i should go ahead and let this loose or do you think he was going to do it on a friday dump and it's like oh crap this guy beat me to the news cycle (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's, it's really it's really um it's really irresponsible is what I think. Like you were elected just
because now they have to decide whether to do a special election like they did for Congressman Lewis, which I just voted in this week. Um, and that costs a lot of money. And then there's always going to be a runoff because everybody's going to want to, I don't know, maybe not in that case, but it's just, to me, it's irresponsible. Just stay there, finish it out. I mean, mm-hmm. there's going to be a Thanksgiving break. Then it's going to, there's not going to be that much going on probably. Mm-hmm. And then okay. uh, the, the, the winter holidays and then now, you're done. Like, Here's another thing, guys. Law law states that if someone, you know, vacates their seat before their term is up, that the governor has 30 days to call a special election, which means by if he, he, he quits in October, well, just about on our regular election day, he would have to call a special election to fill out you know, the remaining two months or whatever of Graves' turn, uh, maybe just a month of his term, when Congress wouldn't even probably be there for any reason. I mean, mean, it's the same thing thing with Congressman Lewis's seat. You know, I mean, there's like seven people running, so the chances of anybody uh, prevailing in the election are slim so yeah then you have a runoff so the soonest anyone could be actually in office is like the week of december like sometime the first week or the second week in december so they're going to be there for a month but half that time they're not going to be in session so number one how stupid number two why would you want to run for that like what would be the what's the advantage for to to put it on your resume i suppose you i have yeah. been a member of congress you know if you want a political resume that would be you know a good plum to to dangle out in front of future voters i've been a member of congress no. i guess somebody also said to me that if you do that and then you run Again in 2022, you can say reelect me. Mm. Yeah, I, and that would be a weird deal, and it's kind of a weird deal in both of those seats because theoretically you could have a, a former member for a month versus a sitting congressional representative. Um, here's the ironic thing or the crazy thing, sad thing to think about. Is this week, you know, like we said, there were three characters involved with this uh, 14th congressional seat, and um, Marjorie Green was the dependable one this week. Um, Tim, <laughs> who would have ever thought that would be true? Yeah, really. Uh, I'm still thinking of Graves' angle here, guys. I mean, either he had to quit, which I, I, I just don't see that at all, or he wanted to, Okay. If if he had to quit is not true, then he wanted to quit has to be true. Why would he want to quit? What would prompt him to go ahead and leave? Would it be a job? If that's true, why why wouldn't he go ahead and say that? You know, if it's the money, you know, I'm going ahead and taking this job opportunity, people would understand, and that would be that. But I, I do not understand 
what is going on with him unless he's going to use this again sometime in the future? A lot perhaps to come back in two years and run in the primary against her by saying something like, well, I saved the voters a lot of money by not taking their paychecks when we weren't doing anything or something like that. I don't know. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. I mean, I, uh, yeah, not, I think you, quitting, but... yeah, quitting would actually be something she could use against him. Remember how they they used that against Sarah Palin when she didn't finish her um, gubernatorial term? They talked yeah. about that, and that was Republicans that liked to talk about that. Um and so I don't think that helps him there. It, you know, it could be some type of lobbying type job where. Well, why um, didn't he say that? Why didn't it'd he be a just say that? Interest. The voters would have understood that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, guys, this is a pretty good. Go ahead, Catherine. Last point on. Why would you have to? Why would you have to leave? Like, what difference could a you know two months make? At a job level mm. like that, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, the thing it's is, though, something prompted him to go. Yeah. Other than what he said. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know why he would do this? Like I said, if it's some kind of conflict of interest um, jobs, the only thing I can think of because he would have to not be able to serve in Congress and do that job at the exact same time. And so, um, you know, time may tell on this, although if he is one of those kind of jobs, he'll be up in D.C. He won't be in Ranger, Georgia, um, you know, where he's from. Um, You know, I I doubt any kind of uh, entanglements are happening in rural Gordon County uh, where he couldn't do both jobs. And, you know, he's been pretty silent on this race. I don't think he endorsed in the race to replace him. He never spoke out in favor or against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Amazingly, a lot of folks didn't speak out in that race um, for whatever reason. Well, guys, I want to go ahead and uh, switch gears now and bring in our guest for the third time to the kudzu vine, Mr. William Snyder. Welcome, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes, um, we're just excited to have you on. And uh, first off, we're coming off of just a few weeks ago, the Democratic Convention and then the Republican Convention. And they were kind of back-to-back weeks, and they were for the first time virtual. Um, you've covered many conventions and probably given many thoughts on them in the past. How did this virtual convention differ? Well, I don't think it had as big as an audience as the previous conventions, as typical conventions have done in the past, because they were basically produced. There was nothing spontaneous, not, not very little spontaneous about these conventions. What they were were infomercials. It was like what you see on late night television. I remember the Democratic convention. You had a well-known actress and comedian, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the master of ceremonies, and she kept saying, dial this number or text this number, 30330, and we'll tell you how to make sure your vote counts. And I kept thinking, any minute now, a guy is going to break in and say, if you call within the next 10 minutes, you'll get two votes. It was just that kind of show. (laughs) (laughs) It was that kind Um, of show. 
Yes, and that that was the Democratic side. Well, the Republican side to me seemed like it had two uh, pieces. There was um, the future of the Republican Party type speeches with um, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and Dan Crenshaw. And then you had the Trump family and friends um, like Kimberly Guilfoyle and then people with Trump as their last name. Um, what did you kind of think of the two halves of that convention? Well, basically they were preaching to the converted. Both parties were. Uh, the people, neither one got a huge audience. Uh, and in both cases, their own partisans were the ones most likely to watch. But that's the purpose of conventions. The purpose of conventions is to be pep rallies. You have a Democratic pep rally, so the Democratic faithful will get all fired up and ready to organize people and make sure they go to the polls, and the same thing with the Republican convention. In that respect, I think they were pretty successful, but the polls indicate they really didn't change many minds. Very few voters shifted from one side to the other uh, as a result of the conventions. Yes. Well, um, looking at another topic that's come out since the conventions, uh, Bob Woodward's book, um, it, it's just hitting the press, and uh, it hit, hit the press first, and then it's going to hit uh, bookshelves and, and online retailers next. And uh, there was some pretty big um, news coming out of it, including Donald Trump uh, it, to Bob Woodward saying that he realized how serious coronavirus was and could be at the same time he was downplaying aspects to the public. Um, what's kind of your take on how damaging uh, that may or may not be to Donald Trump, and why? I think it's pretty damaging. And the question that is re being raised all over Washington, in fact, all over the country, is what in the world was the president thinking by scheduling 18 interviews with Bob Woodward? Doesn't he know what Bob Woodward does? Bob Woodward already brought down one president. He was part of the team, Woodward and Bernstein, that brought down Richard Nixon as, during Watergate. I mean, Trump should have known what was happening. In this case, Woodward really got him because the words came out of Trump's mouth. These were tape-recorded interviews in which Woodward asked some very leading questions, and Trump just fell for it. I mean, it was the most incredible thing to listen to him basically saying, well, I lied because I thought it was the right thing to do, so I, so I wasn't frightening people. Very damaging information coming out of the president's mouth. I mean, this was a crazy thing for the president of the United States to do. Yes, and kind of, I guess, a related follow-up. Um, Tucker Carlson, you know, I don't know if he reported, but he discussed on his show um, how Lindsey Graham helped kind of orchestrate uh, these interviews and uh, for the Woodward book, and he kind of blamed, um, you know, Lindsey Graham for this and kind of attacked him. And then I think the uh, Lincoln Project's kind of piled on a bit too. Do you think this could – hurt Lindsey Graham into the po uh, point where it uh, possibly changes enough votes to put that seat where Jamie Harrison's opposing him in play? Well, that's, that's possible. I think there's a lot of – you're hearing in Washington at least, I don't know about South Carolina, but you're hearing a lot of, uh, of um, criticism of Lindsey Graham, that this was a very foolish thing for him to do. I think Tucker Carlson took off, took off after Lindsey Graham because he didn't want to take off after the president. He didn't want to criticize the president for being foolish enough to, uh, to agree to do these interviews. In my case, I would say, look – Let's put it where, let's put the blame where it belongs. The president was simply crazy to agree to do all those interviews with Bob Woodward. 
Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this thing to um, Tim and then Catherine. Uh, Tim, questions for Mr. Snyder. Good evening, Professor. Thank you for being you. with us again. Um, I'll give my age away a little bit, and I guess yours too, since you'll clearly remember this, but we distinctly recall Richard Nixon's campaigns of 68, and especially in 72 with his Southern strategy and his law and order culture war type stuff, if you will. And, of course, we see that Donald Trump has launched a culture war narrative as a prime issue in his campaign right now. And his target, of course, is suburban voters that that he has been losing, especially suburban women. My question to you, we know that it worked in 68 and spectacular fashion in 72. Is it working now? No. It's not, because it's not 1968 or 1972 anymore. Um, the uh, strategy that the president is using is solidifying his base, which is not a majority of the voters. It's about maybe in close to 40% of the voters. But these are the people who are really motivated, by, still motivated by the culture war issues, race, racial backlash. I'll give you an interesting figure about that. In 1968, Richard Nixon's worst state was Mississippi. He got about 19 mm percent -hmm. of the vote. In 1972, Richard Nixon's best state was Mississippi. Why? Because he added the George Wallace vote, which was over 60 percent in Mississippi, to the small Republican vote. And that was the new Republican majority in the South, which has lasted ever since then. Ronald Reagan added to it by adding in a lot of religious voters. But the, you, you put together the racial backlash and the religious vote, and you've got a pretty solid majority. Well, that majority is aging. Ronald Reagan took office a long time ago, what, uh, 20, 40 years ago. So at the moment, it's an old sort of theme. Trump didn't invent it, but he decided to run on the basis of the culture war because it solidifies a vote that he, he used in, in 2016 to barely get elected. It wasn't even a plurality of the vote. Uh, he's trying the same thing again. He believes... He can win in 2020 the way he won in 2016. That's going to be very difficult. Mm. You know, even uh, I wanted to add this little uh, caveat to, to what you were just talking about in the South. In 1972, Nixon got 75% of the vote in Georgia. I swear to you, sir, two years later, I couldn't find anybody that voted for him. I, I just thought I'd throw <laughs> that one out there. <laughs> Uh, That's true. Now, now another, another thing that the uh, president has done is he has, once again, as he did four years ago, come out with a list of, of 20 names or so of, of uh, possible Supreme Court uh, appointees in his second term. Now, you tweeted something interesting. You said Joe Biden's Supreme Court list should include Include only one name, that of Merrick Garland. Why? Because he was the he was the judge that Barack Obama nominated, actually, to the Supreme Court in the last year of his presidency, and the Senate refused even to have hearings. Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. wouldn't have hearings. He wouldn't even take up the nomination. It was a gigantic. Uh, discourtesy to a sitting president, not even to consider the man that he nominated. 
I mean, and Democrats are still fuming about that. Uh, Merrick Garland was considered qualified by Barack Obama. If Joe Biden becomes president, he he can't question Merrick Garland's uh, um, qualifications. I think it would be seen as a very suitable parting salute to the man who really put him on the national stage, to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And and would uh, him doing something like this negate any advantage Trump might have by naming the list that he named? I don't think that uh, Joe Biden is going to name Merrick Garland before the election, so I don't think it's going to be a real issue. But uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump gave out his list of names in order to encourage the conservative voters, particularly the religious right, who care deeply about the Supreme Court, uh, to encourage them to come out and vote for him. Uh, Donald Trump is mobilizing the base. That's the way he runs an election, certainly in national politics. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. That is a very divisive strategy. When you mobilize the base, you're also counter-mobilizing the other side. And that's probably a Mm -hmm. more numerous vote than the base. You have the liberal Mm -hmm. versus conservative vote, and it's dividing the country. A lot of people are predicting political violence in this election. It's deeply Mm -hmm. dividing the country, and there are a lot of voters who want to get rid of Trump principally because they say, how can can we keep him as president? He's tearing the country apart. Mm Mm-hmm. And and uh, you led me right, you segued perfectly by using the word predict right into my next question. Um, in July, you wrote of a distinct possibility of a blue wave this year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now we are just, oh, seven weeks or so out. Do you still see that possibility? Why or why not? I still see possibility of a blue wave because there's a lot of dissatisfaction, particularly since the Woodward book came out. And the other big story this week, since the president of the United States took it upon himself to insult members of the military. He criticized the leadership in the Pentagon and said they're just taking orders from the defense industry. And even more damaging, he criticized American soldiers who died in World War One and World War Two, refused to visit their grave sites in Europe. Uh, because he said they were a bunch of losers and suckers for agreeing to fight in that war. And he, he asked the question, uh, how much money did they get for that? They didn't get paid very much. That was, they were a bunch of losers and suckers. Well, that really angered a lot of American voters. And I think anyone who's on the line about this election has come out uh, very critical of Donald Trump. So I think that mm-hmm. there is a possibility now of a real blue wave building in which Democrats not only win the White House, but also the Senate, and they'll keep the House of Representatives. Now, the president has, uh, of course, turned up the attack volume uh, and is very much attempting to make this a choice between himself, as he sees it, and presenting his opposition as a diminished candidate for uh, you know, a variety of reasons. So do voters, will they be thinking that way, or, or will they be viewing this election as a mandate on the president, up or down? What they'll be viewing the, pre- the, the this election as is a referendum on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump doesn't want that. He wants to make it a choice between Trump and Biden. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way the voters see it. The voters see it as, should we, hire, should we rehire or fire Donald Trump? 
and there's deep division over that issue. Uh, and at this point, I would say the likelihood is the voters will be in a mood to fire this president if for no other reason than he's dividing the country and he's lied to the American people on occasion after occasion. And he even acknowledged it in the tapes for Bob Woodward's book. Mm. And, and, and the final $64,000 question, and then I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Uh, you know, obviously in recent days, the, the words mail-in voting have become a pretty normal part of our vocabulary. And polls are showing that anywhere from 53 to 81% of Democratic voters will use this option, while polls also show that Republican voters prefer in-person voting by anywhere from 69 to 87%. Isn't this going to lead to just major, major problems with counting the vote uh, beginning on election night? Yes, it will. Um, The most states, the votes that are cast on election day come out first. That total comes out first, and it's likely to be uh, a very strongly Republican vote because Democrats are voting by mail. In most states, not all of them, each state does it its own way, but in many states, the mail-in ballots aren't even counted until uh, after the polls close on election night, and it can take days, sometimes weeks, to count those ballots. Well, if the votes on election day in some key states show Uh, a majority or even a plurality uh, for Donald Trump, then he's likely to say, I've won, and demand that Joe Biden concede to him. And Biden will be in the position of saying, let's wait until we count the mail-in ballots, and Trump will complain as he's done all along. The mail-in ballots are fraudulent, they're rigged, the Democrats are rigging the system, and we could have a real confrontation over this election that lasts weeks and weeks and weeks. It has to end by the middle of December, because that's when the Electoral College votes. But there could be Mm -hmm. disputes. It could be like 2000. There could be disputes. There could be a lot of anger um, after election night over how to count or whether to count and how to count the mail-in votes. Wow. And uh, thank you for that. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine for some questions. Catherine? Hello. Thank you so much for being on with us tonight, Mr. Schneider. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to talk, ask you about the economy. Oh. There's always a lot of talk about how the economy is so strong under uh, President Trump, and uh, that's one of the one of the reasons that we should keep him. I don't have very many conservative friends, but that's one of the things that I hear. And I just um, I just feel like it's not true. Like mm-hmm. I think. When we talk about the economy being strong, what we're really talking about is the stock market being strong, which is not really that connected to your average American family or worker, right? I mean, we all, you know, a lot of people have 401ks that are that are um, involved in the stock market, but as far as their day-to-day job, the stock market doesn't have much impact. So how how can uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris talk about the economy in a way that in a way that convinces people that even though the stock market is strong, we still have people without health care, which is an economic problem. 
and the child care and now the, you know, everyone being home with COVID and there's just a lot of, um, I just wish they could figure out a way to talk about that. Do you have any insight on that? Well, it will be difficult for Democrats, uh, principally because uh, the, the stock, the economy was doing very well under in the first three years of Trump's presidency. Um, Democrats will argue, I think with, with good reason, that it was inherited from Barack Obama, who inherited a poor right. economy from uh, George Bush. But uh, the first three years of the Trump administration, the economy was good. Then all of a sudden, coronavirus hit and the economy really collapsed all over the world. One consequence of that is that most voters don't hold President Trump responsible for the collapse of the economy. They wish he would do more to revive the economy, but they think the coronavirus comes first. First, you've got to do something about the pandemic and the plague that's killing so many Americans. It's almost 200,000 Americans who have died. Then we worry about the economy. It's going to be difficult, I think, for either Trump or the Democrats to make the economy a main issue. Uh, Joe Biden has come out with an economic plan to reassure voters that he has ideas of what he can do to revive the economy. But it's going to be very, very tough. And the economy is a factor in this election the way, not in the way it has been in previous elections, which in previous elections, a bad economy has always meant disaster for the incumbent. I'm not sure that's the main complaint about Donald Trump right now, because people don't think he brought about the poor economy. Oh, that's an interesting take on it. Okay. I have one other question. Um, we talked a little bit about early voting, and I, I'm kind of, uh, you know, we've had early voting here in Georgia for a long time. I think, I don't know, at least a couple of election cycles, quite a few, I think. And uh, <clears throat> it's always been frustrating to me that so many of the candidates wait until, you know, 10 days before the election to really ramp up their advertising and um, do their GOTV, their get out the vote programs when really they could be starting as soon as now, Uh, you know, uh, absentee ballots are being mailed. People are voting by mail. Early voting starts, you know, in October. And so how do we, uh, what's the, I mean, aside from just, you know, dropping a lot more money into advertising and media, how do we, going forward, how do we sort of manage this uh, change in the way we vote? Because a lot of people vote, you know, like weeks ahead of, I mean, I just voted in our special election for the remainder of Congressman Lewis's seat. The election is the 29th of September. I voted on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done, I'm voted. So if anything, there's a couple things. There's like, what if some big news breaks between, you know, do you risk voting for someone and then find out that something happened? So how, how do you think this will uh, develop over, not just this year, but going forward? Well, first of all, let me give you one figure that just came out. Yahoo News did a poll and they asked Americans, have you made up your mind yet? for sure how you're going to vote. And you know what? 95% of voters said, I've made up my mind. I know how I'm going to vote. They're not going to be phased by just about anything. Only 5% of the people said they they have not yet made up their minds. A trivial number of people probably won't vote at all. 
Americans, this election is so divided and so tense that you've got people on both sides who say, I don't want to wait to vote. I know how I'm going to vote, and I want to vote right now. The election is – I'm not going to wait another eight weeks for this election. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what's happening there. So the, the last few weeks of the campaign don't really mean very much in terms of what the candidates do, but you're right. Something could happen, something very dramatic, and who knows what could happen. Someone could take – the pandemic could get worse. It, it might turn around. They might discover a vaccine. You might have an attack on American forces in the Persian Gulf. Lots of things can happen. But you know what? For people who have already voted, tough luck. They can't get their ballot back. I've seen that happen many times among early voters who suddenly say, I want my ballot back because things have changed. Not going to happen. They've already voted, and their vote is final. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that there's uh, so few undecideds this time. I think that's, for my, uh, for my uh, view, I think that's a good thing. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it back to David if he's got any final questions or to close it out. Thanks. Yes, Mr. Snyder, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Um, we, we told our uh, listeners that you write a column for The Hill. Tim mentioned... Yeah that you're on Twitter. Tell our listeners where they can um, read and follow you. Well, I have a, well, my book is about two years old, but I wrote a book called Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. It is still in print. It was published by Simon & Schuster in May of 2018, so it's a little over two years old, but it's still on sale, and it really traces the history of presidential elections all the way back to 1960, and I try to explain them, and I can tell you the bottom line. This election... The theme of this election, I try to find the theme in every presidential election, this one's really about character. Um, the, the, the real difference between the candidates is over Trump's character. Is he a, a good person? Is he basically a person of poor character? That's what's dividing the electorate this year, much more than any particular policy issue. Of course, the biggest issue is the coronavirus, which neither candidate created. And frankly, I don't think either candidate knows exactly what to do because it's a scientific issue. So it's an unusual election. They can also read the columns that I write for The Hill, which is on the web at thehill.com. I write for them every couple of weeks, uh, and um, that's where you can follow what I'm going to be writing about for this election. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, when things calm down after this election cycle, we're hopefully got some time we can uh, – read and and get into standoff and have you back and really properly talk about that book because we love political authors on the show well my pleasure yes thank you so much sir okay thank you sir okay good night thank you good night all right all right uh bill snyder um just just one of the best political minds um, follow him politics, you know, read him in the heel, follow him on Twitter, get his book stand off. Cause unfortunately, no matter who wins, I don't know how much more governable America comes. Hopefully, uh, we come together more than we are now, but, but, um, I wouldn't bet any money on anything in the short term. Um, well guys, and Catherine, you were talking about early voting, um, which I think this kind of relates. It's what happened during the primary in Georgia, but I think it's going to have implications that we'll get to uh, for the future. They had um, the most massive amount of absentee mail-in voting in Georgia history for the primary, and it ended up being both primaries. It ended up being the 
Democratic presidential primary, and both the Republican and Democratic uh, primary elections for all other offices statewide. And so, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, voted um, by mail. Well, apparently a thousand people voted by mail and then went to um, the polls on election day and voted in person, which is against the law. It's, it's voting twice. Now, the interesting thing was the breakdown was 60-40 Democrats to Republicans, and the fact that there were more Democratic ballots cast, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it was 60% of the ballots, it kind of looked like it was both sides. It wasn't one side more than the other. But Brad Raffensperger kind of sold it to me as more tilting uh, one way than the other. Um, Catherine, what were your thoughts when the story came out? Well, I um, I question. Uh, I'd like to see the data behind those. Like that's mm-hmm. a weird number, one thousand, exactly one thousand. And um, I'd like to know more of the details around those one thousand. Like there was one guy who bragged about it, and that you know was in the news about how he voted absentee and then he went and voted in the election. My um, my uh, reaction to this kind of thing is that this is a fault in the election process, not in the voter. Um, if you if you voted and sent in your absentee ballot and tracked it and it didn't show up the day before election or election day hadn't shown up then you would be concerned that your vote wasn't going to get counted it got lost in the mail it got it got um, rejected for some reason so if you don't know about the laws and about if you're not a inside baseball political person I think it's, it would be natural for you to want to just go and vote and the problem is that the machine, the, the system should have logs that your vote was already in, and then you should be rejected at the um, at the voting booth, at the polling place. Um, it's the same thing when they talk about, you know, people being registered when they shouldn't be. Well, that's the problem with the registration system, not with the individual. So th- that's my reaction. Um, you know, he claimed that, you know, the polling places were so busy and overcrowded and they had to close because they didn't have enough poll workers and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, so you're using an excuse that they were overcrowded. So if they hadn't been overcrowded, the assumption is that this wouldn't have happened. So that means it's their fault. They're, they're a fault in that system. Yeah, Tim, I think this does speak, like Catherine's saying, to a bit of mismanagement on the part of Brad Rathensperger. Um, Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm I'm not known for trusting the Secretary of State's (laughs) word on a lot of things. And I'm like her. That seems like a very odd number. And it is so interesting that this comes out. Right after our president starts screaming that 
mail-in voting is rife with fraud and the potential is there to turn the election, to steal the election and blah, blah. And I'm just wondering if perhaps this narrative from the Secretary of State is designed to support the narrative of Donald Trump, who can st- who can then say, "See there, see what I told you? It's, that's the way it is. You know, they're stealing thousands of votes all over the country. Blah 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 blah." So I'm like Catherine. I would like to see the data on these voters. I would like to see who did it. You know. Um, mistakenly or or who they are or or what they're thinking was in doing it. I I would, I would really like to see more about this. Yeah. And and I guess the most important thing is not looking back about the thousand, but looking forward, how are you going to change things to police it? You know, I mean, and and is he going to then, uh, find some way to stop it, or is it just going to be some draconian crackdown that seems to favor uh, Republican-leaning voters? And I think that's what a lot of people's fear is. Um, do either of y'all know his Fair Fight, um, a voting rights organization nationwide but based in Georgia, um, started by Stacey Abrams? Um, have they made a public statement on this? You know, I, I looked for that, and I didn't find it. But I feel like I saw a statement from – well, the ACLU is involved. They, they're, they've they stepped up to, you know, investigate what's, what's going on. But I'm not sure if, um, if their fight has – I mean, I can't imagine that, they have, that they're not involved. I just don't know if they've made a statement. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to think they'd have some kind of um, stance on this and uh, plan of action. Tim, do you, have you seen anything from them? No, I, no, I haven't. And and Stacey Abrams is a frequent guest on a, on a lot of the political shows that I watch, but I haven't seen where she said anything about this. Uh, I, I did find it interesting, by the way, that the Secretary of State talked about, you know, uh, the full extent of the law. You give it that sort of. Uh, Thing when he was talking about what to do about this, you know, violators will be persecuted to the full extent of the law. There, I, 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 what what is he talking about there? I mean, what 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 is he talking about? Is he talking about dragging a thousand people into court and uh, finding them, putting them in jail, which both things could happen for voter fraud? Is that what he's talking about? What is he yeah. talking about here? And it could be. Remember, uh, we have, we've had several guests from Texas, and one told us about a lady that voted in Texas and she wasn't registered. And they actually, you know, I think she spent some jail time. Uh, I mean, it was totally a, um, a mistake on her part because something about her uh, driver's license had changed. I mean, it was a, just a very seemingly honest mistake. And she was allowed to vote, but then they found out about it, and they acted like she was just this, you know, criminal. She was a jewel thief or something um, that, that <laughs> you know, perpetrated this all on her own. And then so you just kind of wonder, is Brad Raffensperger going to use this playbook uh, against this uh, these 
some of these thousand people. I mean, I think that would be interesting. Like you said, there's the guy that bragged on social media. That's one case. But you have to think out of this group of roughly a thousand people, there was probably a person or two that just forgot they didn't vote or wanted to check mm-hmm. um, because this process was so different. And yeah. let me ask you this. You know the president's been encouraging his voters to go vote twice. You yeah. heard him saying. Exactly right. If a few of them uh, took up the mantra and went and did it. Uh, and, and that's the thing. And it, it's obviously it's not if it's both sides, at least 40% of the voters doing it. It's uh, it's a management issue on Brad Raffensperger's mm-hmm. part. It's not a co- you know concerted effort on one party or just the other. And so, therefore, he's got to be a better manager. I, I think this looks bad on him. Um, so I, I would be oh, very, very right careful how I handle this. And how bold of it. You know, we're all um, hearing about how much extra work there is for the poll workers, you know, with the cleaning and the sanitizing and all that, and then um, limited numbers of poll workers available because so many of them are older and may be uh, compromised as far as the COVID, as far as COVID-19. So then the president says, go vote, vote twice, which just adds to the um, work for these people who are already overextended. It's just so thoughtless. And, um, and uh, I mean, it's ridiculous anyway, because it's against the law, but, but it also just adds to the workload for all these people who are already uh, working so hard. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it, it's not democracy. Um, well, let, we got time for one more topic, and, and we talked to Mr. Snyder about the um, about the Woodward book, and then of course Lindsey Graham as well. So let's see what we can get through to that. Um, Tim, you've probably watched more news programs than Catherine and I, uh, but what seems to be the reaction to those comments that have come out from that book about well, um, the downplaying of the coronavirus? Well, obviously, this is different, and just as obviously, what makes this a, a, a bit different from some other uh, things that we've heard about recently is that we have the president on tape. I'm with Snyder. I don't know why Trump thought it would be a good idea uh, to do this. He actually thought, according to some people, that he could cultivate Bob Woodward, make him his friend, get, bring him over to his side, that, that he could snowball this guy. You know, he can't deny that he said this stuff. So he's trying to fluff it up with, I didn't want to cause panic. Well, you know, it's not playing well. Too many bad things have happened to people. Too many people have died. People have known some. Too many people that have gotten sick. It's happening in their own families. People have lost their jobs, their businesses. We've got this mess with schools. Where every every segment of our lives has been, you know, upended. And and now the American people know that he knew how bad it was before we even had our first death in this country. And he lied publicly about it multiple times. And there's drop-dead evidence that 
he did that, and it doesn't seem that anyone is buying that panic prevention nonsense, except it's <laughs> just serving as a talking point for Forrest Bass, who can't be rattled no matter what they do. But again, all these things that he does like this, that there's no way this gained him any votes. It might have lost him some, but there's no way Donald Trump has gained any votes by pulling this just dumb stunt. And and I don't think I, I think this one is really hurting. This one is hurting. You can just feel it. Yes, Catherine, your thoughts on the um, revelations of the book? Well, I, I agree with um, Tim, and um, I, I just think if how do you not know who Bob Woodward is and what his like mo is? <laughs> like this is like like did you never even watch? I mean, let alone whether you know the history and the facts of it. Have you never watched all the President's Men? It, it it just seems so um, such a folly. Like like he, he, I think he really believes that he's just smarter than everybody. That Trump thinks he's just smarter than everybody, and he'll outwit him. Well, you're not going to outwit Bob Woodward. And yeah. um, and now and I just heard him. I, heard, I saw a quote. Uh, I saw him say something today. He called him a like a. Not a dumbass, but something like that. And I'm like, okay. He, I mean, it's, it's it was just, it's just mystifying. Like like both Bill Schneider and Tim said that he's so ridiculously stupid to have 18 taped interviews with him. Like, yeah, I, I think what happened there. And I do think it's I, I do think it's hurting him. Yeah, I, I think Donald Trump knows that Bob Woodward's bigly. You know, and so he thought, oh, well, I want to, you know, get interviewed by him because I'm bigly too. But then he didn't put mm-hmm. together the consequences. Now, mm-hmm. let's get into the second part. And I do think it's fascinating um, that Lindsey Graham is somehow taking the blame, at least from Tucker Carlson. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the Fox News atmosphere really controls a lot of political thoughts. So I don't know then if. Um, Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and the Talking Five and the Morning Bun and all of them then start, you know, saying the same thing and really piling on Lindsey Graham. Uh, Tim, do you think this could move those numbers a few more points to where his race with Jamie, Jamie Harrison's been a toss-up because some of his hardcore voters just protest don't vote for him? Well, again, it's not going to gain him any votes, just like what Trump did is not going to gain him any. But he actually blames Lindsey Graham, saying that he talked Trump into doing this. I mean, uh, no, so uh, isn't it also interesting that Tucker Carlson said, according to my source, which he didn't name. Now, they've been screaming about anonymous sources, but he didn't name his source who told him this about Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham didn't tell him this. And you know what? Uh, Trump didn't say that in in the public interviews he's done since then. Uh, 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 (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, you, You know, here's another angle, David. 
what is the one thing Donald Trump can't afford to lose? That's time, right? Stories like this are gobbling up time. It's taking days away that he could be doing something else, you know, and and uh, it's just it's just a really bad time for for something like this to be coming out on. I mean, it's damning enough any time it comes out, but right now he doesn't have time to deal with this. He's out of time. He's got seven weeks to try to change people's minds. Like Catherine said, people are voting already. Like yep. Snyder said, only five percent of the voters are even persuadable right now. He's he's uh he's running up against it, and uh, that's why I think this one above all has hurt him. Not only because they got him on tape and he can't deny he said it, but because of when it's happened. Yeah, Catherine. Uh, last word on this: uh, What does this do for Jamie Harrison and two Lindsey Graham in that Senate race? Well, <clears throat> do people really pay attention to what Tucker Carlson says? I don't. <laughs> I, I know what he said because it was covered in a lot of other sources. Right. But Republican voters that watch that stuff like it's entertainment, like while we're watching regular programming, they're watching you know those three from eight to eleven. Though, and they they vote. They're they're listening to it. Well, I, I mean, I, I hope it gives a, a little bump to Jamie Harrison, and you know, I'm never disappointed when when uh, what's his name gets a little hit. So hopefully it'll do something. But I just don't. I don't think that Tucker Carlson has that much. Uh, Not me you know, either. Influence. Yeah. Mm. David, well, David Trump, Trump would have David Trump would have yeah. to go get him for it to make any difference. Not Tucker Carlson. It, it, it would yeah. have to add more. I will say this: I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and it was when the Atlanta United had first played their, you know, their first soccer game back. And I said, "Hey, are you watching the game?" No, I'm having to watch Tucker. Um, this person's spouse, um, she wanted to watch. Tucker. I mean, it was apparently has watched so much in their home that he's on a first name basis with it, and so that's <laughs> that life. Um, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, I, I think you know we dismiss those three as you know buffoonish, but they have so much influence, and I think we have to uh, come to the realization, um, you know, of what kind of power they have. Over this segment, albeit by no means uh, even a plurality. Um, but a uh, great show tonight, and thanks again to William Schneider. And next week, we've already got our uh, guest booked from the Center for Politics out of UVA. Uh, Kyle Condick's going to join us for the second time on the Kudzu Vine. Until then, good night, everybody. <clears throat> good night, guys. Of 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.